Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Steve Pakin about his new biography of Prime Minister the Right Honourable John Turner. Steve Pakin is a journalist, author, and documentary film producer. Over the course of his career, he's worked for a variety of media outlets, and since 2006, he's been the anchor of TV Ontario's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda with Steve Pakin. His latest book, John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister, was published by Sutherland House in the fall of 2022. Steve, many thanks for joining me today. Larry, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start at the very beginning. In the title, there's a reference to an intimate biography. Why intimate? And what were the sources that you were able to access in producing the biography of Mr. Turner? Intimate because I don't want the reader to pick up the book and think that you're going to get a rather dry recitation of the legislative achievements of John Turner's time as consumer and corporate affairs minister, justice minister, finance minister, prime minister, yada, yada, yada. I want them to know that this is going to be a a look at his whole life. And to that end, you mentioned sources. Um, There are things in this book that I think uh, have not seen the pages of previous books. Uh, I talked to his wife, who's had a very tempestuous relationship with members of the media over the years, and yet she sat down for a a lengthy interview with me and had numerous follow-ups after that. Uh, I talked to his kids, who, again, uh, have also had a bit of a push-me-pull-you relationship with uh, media over the years, and so they are represented in the pages of this book. And I got access to Library and Archives Canada, where Mr. Turner has, uh, you know, years and years and and, hundreds of files, floor to ceiling, of his time in public life, and those files... Most of them don't become available to the general public for another 30 years, but because of the family's uh, permission and cooperation, I got access to them for this book. So when I say an intimate biography, that's why. That's amazing, and particularly since, uh, you know, there are certain historic figures over time who actually dispose of some of their materials from their time in public life. You know, William Lyon Mackenzie King was the most famous. He had this fantastic diary, which he insisted be burned upon his death. And and I guess, thankfully, for people who care about history, that was not done. And, and the same thing with John Turner. I'm glad they kept everything. And they did keep everything. A very intimate, very detailed, very personal, very cutting uh, memos among members of his office staff talking about his uh, strengths and, uh, unfortunately, a lot of his weaknesses as well. So that's all in the book as well. So on the family front, Steve, you make reference to John Turner's mother, Phyllis, who was a remarkable woman who at one point was the highest ranking female civil servant in the country. And in one quote that you attribute to her, but that you mentioned might be apocryphal, she says, if he can't be prime minister, he can always be the Pope. How did she influence her son and his subsequent career? (laughs) Well, profoundly. And we have to remember, uh, before she became this really superstar a public servant in the nation's capital. This was a woman who had had been to hell and back. Uh, she met her husband in, in Europe. They lived together in London, England. And tragedy 
very early on. He died on the operating table because of a botched operation. And uh, prior to that, she uh, she lost a child as well. The child was born. And then because of uh, poor care and attention uh, in the delivery room, the child suffocated and died. So this is a woman who, you know, in, in her early 30s is going through some awful stuff in life. She decided to leave England, went back home to Rossland, British Columbia, which is this small mining town in Western Canada, and and she brought her two little kids with her. John Turner, uh, who was only two years old, I think, when his father died, so he has no recollection of, of him, and uh, his younger sister, Brenda. And they basically started from scratch uh, in British Columbia. So the notion that, you know, John Turner grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth I mean, I guess eventually when they got to Ottawa and she became a superstar public servant, you could say that. But before that, uh, it was pretty tough sledding and a lot of tragedy that had to be overcome. It's suggested that she placed quite a few expectations on the shoulders of the young John. Would that be fair early on? Absolutely. Absolutely true. And there were, you know, there, there were expectations set about personal conduct, about how, uh, you know, what marks were expected at school. Uh, this is a single mother of two kids uh, in in very tough circumstances uh, who did not want to settle for second best. And they were a staunchly Catholic family as well. And by that, I, I guess I don't mean that they followed every ritual to the letter of the law, but that but that a certain Catholicity imbued their lives. And John Turner was a, you know, he was a liberal politician eventually, and he had a liberal view towards religion. But but the Catholic faith infused so much of his life, uh, particularly as it came to suffering. I think he understood that no one gets through life scot-free, and there's a great deal of suffering one will have to get through in order to lead a full life. And that was surely true in his private life. And it was also very true in his public life. In going through the book, uh, you know, I, I had forgotten uh, some of the ways in which uh, Mr. Turner's career was noteworthy, but he seems certainly to have lived up to the standard that was set for him. He really did have an extraordinary life and career. He's a world-class athlete. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a standout as Minister of Justice and Finance Minister in the first Trudeau cabinet. And he eventually goes on to become Prime Minister. You know, many claim that he had almost this aura about him that he was preordained for success. Was that just a case of success breeding success? What was it that created that impression? Well, preordained is always a tough word because, as I say, he came from such from such humble and difficult beginnings. But, I mean, yes, through the course of his life, he is, I mean, let's state the obvious here. He is blessed with movie star good looks. And he is the big man on campus at the University of British Columbia. He goes over to Europe and he attends a French uh, a university in France as well, uh, as well as Oxford. So uh, this is a guy who has been blessed with many things in life, good looks, a great education, fluently bilingual, uh, decides to run for parliament at the, at the tender age of 33 for the first time and wins his first time out the gate. So people are taking notice. And in fact, there's a cute story that Brian Mulroney told me. Uh, there's 10 years difference between the two of them. And when John Turner was a rookie MP, Brian Mulroney was a 20-something executive assistant for a minister in the Diefenbaker government. And he's at the parliamentary dining room one day having lunch with one of his buddies. And he says, hey, look, there's John Turner over there. Let's go say hello. And his buddy says to him, he's a liberal. Why bother? Mulroney, of course, being a progressive conservative. And Mulroney says to his friend, why bother? Because he's going to be prime minister someday, and I want to meet him now. 
And it was the beginning of what turned out to be a long, very respectful, very decent friendship, which you might think odd between two guys who eventually would go up against each other in two general elections, but they actually had a very decent relationship away from the cameras. Mentioning Brian Mulrooney makes uh, makes me think of another point that I wanted to raise, Steve, which is going through the book, uh, Mr. Turner seems to have known or crossed paths with just about everybody that you can think of, ranging from people like Morris Duplessis to Robert F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Rod- Roger Bannister, and perhaps most famously, Princess Margaret. And he also seems to have had the ability, uh, which he shared with Sir John A. Macdonald, to remember the name of virtually everyone whose path that he crossed. And what do you think it was that allowed him to forge so many personal relationships, even across party lines with so many people, and in the case of many, to inspire such intense personal loyalty? Well, first and foremost, he loved people. And that sounds like an obvious thing to say until you realize, and I've met thousands of them over the years, there are lots of people in politics who don't like people. You know, they go in for uh, into politics for a variety of reasons, but love of fellow man and woman isn't necessarily one of them. You couldn't say that about John Turner. He did love people. He loved hanging out with people. He loved understanding people. He loved socializing with people. He loved understanding the human condition better. And I, I know that's what animated his public life. He really wanted to get into public life to help to help his fellow Canadians uh, live the best lives they possibly could. And yes, he met the rich and famous and, and, and royalty as well, as you point out. He, he had that famous encounter with Princess Margaret in the middle 1950s when his stepfather was lieutenant governor of British Columbia. And uh, there was a royal tour and uh, his stepfather thought, what who better to chaperone Princess Margaret uh, uh, during her time uh, than my stepson, John Napier Turner? And, oh, the papers had a field day with that. And, and I'll tell you what, he's not a kiss-and-tell guy. But for the first time, you're going to read in a book his comments on his relationship with Princess Margaret, which was, well, I don't know. Forget it. I'm not giving that away, Larry. <laughs> you got to read the book for that one. But suffice to say, he would always say, I'm not, I don't kiss-and-tell. There's a little kissing and telling in this book, more than in any other I've seen. Basically, he's inspiring loyalty. He likes people, and uh, they're prepared to really uh, stay with him over the course of his career in many cases. Quite true. And, and you know, the nature of his relationships is something that I really found quite fascinating. You know, uh, he was, as finance minister, able to meet with George Schultz, who was the Treasury Secretary in the United States, and therefore had meetings with Mr. Schultz and President Nixon. Uh, this is in the uh, early 1970s. And and I remember there's one meeting where they went down there. Turner had a list of five things he wanted to get to. He had brought in his checklist with him. They went through the agenda. They got all five done. And and I think Richard Nixon at some point said to him, you know, you, you, <laughs> you got a lot of guts meeting with us alone. You know, you didn't bring any staff with you. You're meeting with us alone. You know, we could really ruin your career here in some ways. And I think Mr. Turner's response was something along the lines of, uh, if I felt that I needed, um, you know, note takers and hangers on in a meeting like this, I wouldn't bother to have come. Uh, there was a there was a trustworthiness in the relationship, despite the fact Nixon was a Republican and and Turner was a liberal. There was a you know this is pre social media, pre cable news, pre twenty four seven coverage. They they just related to each other differently. They trusted each other in a way that you just don't see today, or certainly not as much today. So I think that contributed to all of that. You mentioned John Turner's, you know, desire to serve Canadians writ large, but 
in the book, it also comes through that he had a very strong general sense of Canadianness, and particularly in the context of his love for the North. And it also really came out in the context of the free trade debate in the 1980s. Where did his passion for the country come from? What was the source of it? You've got to remember that he's one of, I think, only three prime ministers in Canadian history to have represented ridings in three different provinces. So he represented multiple parts of this country and knew the country very well. He never liked to boast, but he said, to the extent that I have one boast I can make, it's that I can go onto the main streets of any city in this country and bump into somebody I know. You know, he just knew a lot of people and, and you know, really enjoyed those relationships. Furthermore, uh, I agree with you as it relates to Northern Canada. And, and by that, I'm not talking about Sudbury or Thunder Bay. I'm talking about way up there. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about places in this country where he may have been the first non-Indigenous person uh, to have canoed those lakes. And, you know, there are these in the 1970s, these famous canoe trips that his family took where they went uh, up to the territories and Baffin Island and parts of this country that, that very few people have ever seen. But that was him. And I think he developed that love for Northern Canada in part because I'm trying to remember now, I think he was parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Northern Affairs before he got into cabinet. And as a result, he did a lot of political events in the north of the country and he just fell in love. And thus the later trips with his family up to Northern Canada, his wife, who's an excellent photographer, uh, used to bring her camera. And while they were canoeing down those rivers, she'd get the camera out. He'd be in the stern paddling and steering, and she'd get right up there in the bow and just take these most, I mean, amazing, breathtaking pictures of parts of this country that, that Larry, I suspect you and I will never see. And, and yeah, and it just, that was his thing. His thing was just knowing every square inch of this country as much as he could. Are the photographs at library and archives as well, Steve, or are they still kept by the family as treasured possessions? Mrs. Turner, late in life, went to, as it was then known, Ryerson University to get a degree in photography. And after she finished, she offered to give Ryerson all of her photos, and she has tens of thousands of them, and they didn't want them. Now, this is many, many years ago. This is sort of before before Canadians had a bit of a, a, an awakening as it relates to Indigenous issues. And she offered Ryerson all these photos that she'd taken for some kind of exhibit or for their archives or whatever, and they weren't interested. So she has them at home on hard drives. She's got just dozens and dozens of hard drives at her home in Toronto and tens of thousands of the most gorgeous pictures of parts of this country that most people will never see. Oh, that's just amazing. I'd like to... Uh come back to a point that you touched on a little earlier in our conversation, and that that's John Turner's strong Catholic faith. And I'd like to get your sense of how that faith influenced uh, his sense of public service and his desire to give back to the country. Well, I think one of the most fascinating things about his Catholicity was that it did not influence his public responsibilities. Now, let's keep in mind, John Turner is the justice minister who passes, gets passed, the first bill in Canadian history to legalize abortion. Now, his personal view, of course, would have been very much pro-life and against abortion. But Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister of the country. And of course, he gets the credit for the big line, which is that, you know, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. Trudeau said the line, but it was Turner who actually got the bill through parliament. And, and you know, to the extent that we have no legislation governing abortion in the country today, uh, the father of all of that is John Turner. 
And it may have been against his personal ethic and his personal faith, but he never confused his personal religious beliefs with what he believed to be his personal, uh, excuse me, his public responsibilities to the country. So there was definitely, I mean, let's, let's put that on the record right away. We talked about the suffering already, and he believed suffering was part of the game when you're a Catholic. Uh, you mentioned his Olympic background. This is a guy who was the fastest man in the country once upon a time and would have represented Canada at the 48 Olympics if not for a car accident that buggered up his knee and he couldn't, as a result, participate in those games. Now, I guess it's, you know a lesser mortal might have sat around and said, woe is me, uh, the Lord done me wrong, but that was not John Turner's approach to it at all. His view was, you know, life is a test. We are frequently tested in ways that we don't like, but that's all part of the human condition and existence, and we just have to power through. And that's what he did. Well, that's really quite something. And in fact, we're now going to get to some of the tests that Mr. Turner faced particularly in politics. So he's away from the political realm for many years. And in 1984, he reaches out and grabs the brass ring and he wins the liberal leadership. And he then almost immediately launches the country into a snap election. How significant do you think that Pierre Trudeau's failure to publicly rally to John Turner was? And why do you think that he felt compelled to head straight into an election which would prove to be disastrous for the liberals? Well, okay, let me tackle the second part of that first. John Turner was actually a participant in the 1968 Liberal Leadership Convention, which Pierre Trudeau won on four ballots with 50.5% of the vote. For all those people who think there was great Trudeau mania in the Liberal Party, not really. He barely won, Pierre Trudeau. In any event, when Mr. Trudeau won the Liberal Leadership, he called a snap election almost instantly, sent the public off to the polls, and he won a big majority government. Mr. Turner remembered that. That was in the back of his head. And therefore, when he won the liberal leadership on the second ballot with a much higher percentage of the delegates at that convention, he interpreted that resounding victory as uh, a widespread approval for his renewal of the liberal leadership in his favor. And as a result, he thought it worked for Trudeau in 68. I'm going back to the same playbook. And he called a snap election, except the big difference was. The liberals had been in power for a long time by 1984, and Pierre Trudeau left office, uh, you know, really quite deeply unpopular. And it was the liberal support in the country when Turner took over was a mile wide and it was an inch deep. And as things began to go south, first, uh, you know, in the beginning of the uh, election campaign for Mr. Turner, and then, of course, the, the, the most fateful election leaders debate in history, uh, when Brian Mulroney just took him out to the woodshed. Uh, it all fell apart at that point. So it, uh, uh, he, t he took the wrong lesson from 1968. He applied it in 1984, but the conditions were very different. The two leaders were very different. And to be sure, the outcome was very different. He led the liberals, uh, sadly for him, uh, to their worst showing ever at that point. And perhaps a little misreading of the public mood at the time and a misreading of the tea leaves politically, sure. So the next uh, portion of the book that covers the period just prior to the Liberal Leadership Review of 1986 through to the election of 1988, I have to say, makes for some pretty tough reading. Because to me, when I read it, it, it really showed just how personal and nasty politics can occasionally be. And uh, John Turner faced during that period intense personal opposition within the party 
culminating in what you refer to as an attempted coup against his leadership. <laughs> what happened? You know, and when I was in Ottawa and I went through the papers and I saw all the memos and going back and forth among members of his staff, even all these years later, even three decades later, I still can't get over the amount of of disloyalty and all of the conspiring that was going on behind the scenes in an attempt to to get him to quit, to, to kick him out, even in the middle of the 1988 election campaign. Uh, there, <laughs> I remember reading, Brian, in Brian Mulroney's, uh, I can't remember if it was in his memoirs or if he told me this after the fact, but you know, there was so much to talk at the time about kicking Turner out and putting Jean Chrétien in and then having Chrétien show up at the leaders debate, Brian Mulroney looking at him and saying, how did you get here? <laughs> so anyway, Larry, it was really astonishing. Um, to some extent, it was understandable. I mean, Mr. Turner had led the liberals to their worst showing ever in 84. It looked like despite getting a really good endorsement in 1986, because after liberal leaders lose an election, they have to go to the party and there's a leadership review. And Turner really skated through that review pretty well. I think he got, I forget now, 76, 77 percent of the of the endorsement votes. So he looked in good shape. But of course, there was there were too many disagreements in the party. There were disagreements about the Meech Lake Accord. There were disagreements about uh, backben- you know, relationships with backbenchers. Uh, Mr. Turner always seemed to be putting out brush fires all over the place. So by the time 88 came along, instead of sort of rolling into that election on a high from winning his leadership review, uh, you know, the knives were just coming out and going into his front and going into his back. And um, he lost again. You know, he lost again, even though he had a much better election and doubled the liberal seat count, he lost again. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that that he wasn't look at Brian Mulroney's a pretty he's, he's a pretty impressive leader. And, you know, he's he's the only leader since John A. McDonald for the Tories to win back to back majority governments. So we have to acknowledge off the top. John Turner had a tough mission. He had a tough mission against a a, a politician of of, you know, if not unique, then certainly generational talent, and um, and came up short. And that's not a sin. It's just a, a reality. That's all. Well, and you've mentioned two names, I think, that really represent key relationships uh, for Mr. Turner, uh, Brian Mulroney first and Jean Chrétien. And one of those relationships was surprisingly warm, and the other one was highly antagonistic. Tell us about those two relationships. Well, and the funny thing is, you know, of course, uh, people listen to this and they say he had a decent relationship with one, and you'd assume that would be his fellow liberal, fellow cabinet minister from the Trudeau cabinet, Jean Chrétien, and a terrible relationship with Mulroney because, after all, they fought two elections against each other. No, quite the opposite. Uh, John Turner and Brian Mulroney were both young lawyers in Montreal in the 1950s. They had been friends even before they both got elected. Uh, yes, they did face off against each other in two elections, and it was tough sledding for a while, and there were some real tough shots taken uh, by both guys against each other. Um, but in the end, even after John Turner announced he was stepping down from public life, Brian Mulroney, through the intermediary Conrad Black, offered Mr. Turner uh, the Italian and or Vatican ambassadorship. Uh, he was prepared to kind of, quote unquote, take care of John Turner. He didn't want to see him suffer. Uh, he knew that going back into the private sector after losing two straight elections might be tough for John Turner. And so he threw him a lifeline. Now, Turner turned him down. But the fact is, it's an example of the civility that both men held for each other. And and, and Mr. Mulroney's, um, I think, quite laudable 
a desire not to see a former Canadian prime minister embarrassed. Uh, frankly, just as, as Jean Chrétien did for Kim Campbell. He gave her the consul generalship in Los Angeles because there's an understanding you don't want a former prime minister to be embarrassed. Anyway, there's that. Now, Turner Chrétien. That's a whole other kettle of fish. You know, at John Turner's 90th birthday party, Larry, Jean Chrétien got up and gave a beautiful speech. And let's remember, these guys have been rivals at that point for 50 years. And Mr. Chrétien's speech went along the lines of this. You know, we both got elected in the early 1960s as backbenchers. We both served in Pierre Trudeau's cabinet. We both were finance ministers and justice ministers and party leaders and prime ministers. But for whatever reason, God decided that we should be rivals as well. And they were, right? In the 84 leadership convention, Turner beat Chrétien on the second ballot, and he beat him big. And it drove Chrétien crazy, because, of course, he didn't go to the private sector for 10 years, as Turner did. He stuck around Ottawa. And, and it bothered him that despite his sticking around and you know, laboring in the vineyards for the Liberal Party all those years, uh, I think by the time he ran for the Liberal leadership, he'd been an MP for 20 years. Despite that, a lot of his friends were supporting Turner, and it drove him crazy because he thought, Turner left. Turner's not as good as I am. I know the issues better than Turner. Why is everybody supporting Turner? And the answer, frankly, was that the liberals had this tradition of alternating, usually a French leader, then an English leader, then a French leader, then an English leader. And given that Trudeau was being replaced, it was an Anglophone's turn. That's what Chrétien kept hearing, an Anglophone's turn. So there was that. And Turner had this aura of being a winner around him. And a lot of people just were very opportunistic in the Liberal Party at the time, and they thought Turner's the guy to keep us in power. And so, sorry, Jean, we're going with Turner. And you know, all of that just served to, to create considerable enmity between the two men, and even beyond that, among their staffs as well. And so there was just tons of bad blood and um, internecine warfare for the next uh, 20, 30 years. But you mentioned the the 90th birthday celebration. Is it fair to say then that that towards the end there there was a reconciliation of sorts to the extent that that's possible given their rivalry? Absolutely true. And there's a beautiful picture in the book of Chrétien coming up to Turner that night. And Mr. Turner at this point, you know, 90 years old, not in good health. There's this wonderful picture of the two men sharing a big laugh. Chrétien leaning over, saying something to Turner in his ear, and Turner with this big belly laugh on his face. So yes, that night, there was considerable nervousness about whether Chrétien would even show up. And if he did show up, what would he say? But the whole evening was fantastic, and he did show up, and he was the last speaker. They saved the best for last, quote-unquote. And he had some lovely things to say about Turner, and it was it really was a beautiful night where you see these two old war horses finally reconciling. So John Turner suffers the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. I mean, we talked a little bit about what was happening during the 1980s, uh, you know, the type of opposition he had to his leadership at certain points in his career. But through it all, he soldiered on. And uh, we we talked about his... his uh, his, you know, sense of duty a little earlier, but what do you, what do you attribute uh, his resilience to? Why, why go on? I think he felt he had to. I think he felt he owed it to himself, to his family, and the country to make a contribution. And 
I mean, let me set the, for the, set the stage for this. You know, he, he comes back into public life in 84, loses two consecutive elections, leaves public life again in 93, is not sort of the conquering hero that he was in 1975 when he left the first time and became the most desired corporate director in the whole country and sconced at a big, you know, big name law firm. Um, no, he comes back this time and the directorships are not there for him. And while he gets a good job at a, at a decent law firm, it's a small one. It's not one of the so-called seven sisters. So it, it's a very different thing. And and rather than being seen as this sort of uh, eminence grise in the Liberal Party, he's sort of seen as um, as the King Lear of the Liberal Party. You know, he's kind of a tragic figure. And he calls a friend of his one day and he says, I need your help. I need to, I want to reclaim my name. I want to, I want to be kind of resurrected, uh, to use a, a bit of a religious term there. I want to be re- resurrected in the liberal family and in the country. And the two of them essentially sit down and kind of plot out how that can happen. And one of the great things, maybe the best thing he ever did in his life, that's what he said anyway, was he became a kind of a champion for democracy at that stage. So here he is in his 70s and 80s, going into schools, crossing the country, uh, fighting the good fight for democracy, giving speeches to university and college and high school kids about the importance of getting engaged in public life. He used to say, democracy doesn't happen by accident. You've got to participate. And he really wanted people to sort of get in there in the way he did, right? I mean, he gave up prime earning years uh, where uh, uh, there's no question he gave up millions and millions of dollars to leave the private sector and come back into public life because there were people who said, John, we need you. And and he thought, I have a duty to come back if I can and help the Liberal Party and help the country. And so he did. And, you know, the the best thing he might have ever done in his life was to lead a 500-person strong delegation in 2004, going to Ukraine and overseeing the presidential election they had there. And it was it was deeply meaningful. He was very emotionally invested in seeing that country uh, on the path to democracy. And as he left after overseeing the Canadian delegation and coming home, he looked at one of his friends and he said, I think that's the most important thing I've ever done in my life. And I, I presume he meant in his public life, you know, in his, because uh, uh, certainly ha- you know, having a family would have been the most important thing he did in his, in his personal life. So, so there's that. And I think that, that kind of championing of democracy in his latter years gave him uh, a great deal of joy and, and, and really brought him back in the public's esteem as well. Well, that's a great point at which to get to the final point that I wanted to raise, Steve. And why don't we leave in, in this particular case, the last word to John Turner and make it, make it a speculative last word. If he were here today, what would he say about the state of our politics and the state of our country that he cared about so passionately? Well, John Turner was what they called a House of Commons man. And by that, he really believed in the importance and the supremacy of Parliament. He thought the great debates of the country should take place in Parliament. Uh, when he was younger, you know, it, it was not um, atypical for people to come off the streets and go into the public galleries in Parliament and just watch the debates. Because, of course, this is before television. This is before, uh, you know, cable coverage of all of this. And the debates were great and speakers were better. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is a time long gone. Uh, so I think he'd look at Parliament today and he'd be saddened at what looks like the sort of deterioration of Parliament. Uh, 
I think he'd be saddened that we don't have any of the great orators today that we did once upon a time. Um, I, I think he would certainly be mortified at uh, some of the uh, outrageous um, language uh, that members of parliament use against one another uh, and the lack of civility in public life. I mean, I remember in his farewell speech um, in uh, the early 1990s, uh, he had as many nice things, frankly, to say about the opposition members as he did about the people on his own side. Now, <laughs> that may have been because of all the knives he got in the back from people on his own side, but it also was a reflection of the fact that he had relationships, good relationships, good personal relationships on all sides of the House. So can we get those days back? Uh, you know, I'd love to think we could, but I don't know whether it's possible in an age of 24-7 cable and social media that's on steroids. I don't know, but I know he'd be very unhappy to see that kind of thing today. Well, I'm, I'm not going to uh, tell listeners what's in the book, Steve, uh, but I'll simply conclude by saying it's very possible that if he were here today, he might be tempted to drop an F-bomb, but I won't say anything else on that. <laughs> oh, that was his favorite word, Larry. <laughs> and, I, and I was on the receiving end of it a number of times. But uh, yeah, yeah, he loved that word. Um, as much as any word in the English language, he loved to drop that word, sometimes in the most inopportune moments, but the, that was all part of him as well. Well, Steve, I want to thank you very much for joining us uh, today on Witness to Yesterday. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today was Steve Pakin. His book, John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister, was published by Sutherland House in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at champlainsociety.ca. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on March the 14th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. <laughs>